Uh, I'm Simon Jackman. I'm the CEO of the U.S. Study Center. And this is the first of a series of events we'll be doing this year, engaging Australians um, as America is really coming up on what will be a crossroads election in, in November, um, the, the re-election, or not, of, of President Trump. And right now we find ourselves here in the tail end of an Australian summer and deep winter in the United States, and the Iowa caucuses will be happening on Monday in the US, um, on Tuesday here. At the same time, only the, the, uh, the third impeachment trial in American history is underway, um, and, and only the first time that a first-term um, U.S. president uh, has ever faced uh, impeachment and, and trial in the Senate. Uh, remarkable times we're living through, um, and what we thought we would do this year are regular events of this sort, where we would sample from the expertise we have at the U.S. Study Center, and to engage an interested lay public uh, on, on these matters uh, in the U.S., some commentary about U.S. politics per se, but consistent with the mission of the United States Study Center, really working through what are the implications for Australia in all that. Sure, it's a, it's a show and it's a spectacle and, and this person and that person, and it's on TV all the time, but I think one thing that we try to do at the U.S. Study Center is, okay, yes, we'll give you a great authoritative summary of that, but the real value add, we hope, is to try and give, what does it mean for us here? What does it mean for Australia? And to that end, we've got a, a really interesting set of perspectives on that tonight. Um, um, to my right, immediately, um, uh, Kim Hoggart. Now, Kim is a non-resident fellow at the Centre. Um, Kim worked um, in two Republican administrations in the United States, uh, the Reagan administration, and then um, um, also in, in the administration of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush um, as uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs. Um, a big job and, and eminently well suited um, uh, to, to the task we have tonight, that is parsing what's going on in the United States for, for, another, for an audience offshore, yes. for an international audience. Um, uh, to Kim's right, is um, uh, Professor, Associate Professor Brendan O'Connor. Um, Brendan's been with the Centre since its foundation, um, over, over 10 years ago now, uh, and, and has been a mainstay of the Centre's academic program. Uh, recently had a banner year last year, three books that he either authored or co-authored appeared last year, um, and I think he's gonna hold one up as a prop. There you go. We'll get to that <laughs> later. Oh, there's one, there's, there, are, there are other, yeah, there are three. Um, um, uh, Brendan's expertise is really across the board of American politics, American public opinion, and how it backs into uh, American foreign policy. Uh, it's one of the uh, things he's um, uh, really ch carved out some expertise at. And then to Brendan's right uh, is, is Ashley Townsend. Now, Ashley directs the foreign policy and defense program at the United States Study Center over on what we call the think tank part of the center. Uh, less classroom exposure than, than, than Brendan, um, but uh, probably logs a, a bit more time in, in uh, Canberra and Honolulu and Washington than Brendan has in, in recent years. Honolulu would be But, but uh, sort of a bit of a distinction inside the centre between the think tank operation and the, and the academic side of the ledger. But from Ash, where Ashley sits, um, really looking at the implications of what's going on in the United States through American foreign policy and the alliance relationship with Australia, what that, what that will imply for Australia 
as this political year in the US cashes out and what may come down the road. Uh, very interesting set of perspectives there. Um, the way I thought we'd run today was uh, some opening remarks from, from each of you, seriatim, uh, uh, three, five, six minutes max, please. Uh, I'll bounce some questions up here. We'll have a conversation among ourselves briefly. But I really do want to open it up. We've got well over 100 people tonight. Um, you have voted with your feet to be here. Um, we respect that immensely. We want to make tonight be an event of value to you and make sure we leave plenty of time um, for, for questions from the floor. So thank you. Kim, mm. can you open the batting for us, as I we can. say in Australia? May I stand at the podium? Pardon me? May you may, you may do whatever you like. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I've been sitting a lot today. Sure. And I, I feel a bit like Adam Schiff. <laughs> I have to button my jacket before I proceed. Well, thank you everybody for having uh, me here tonight. I appreciate it. Well, I like to have my little notes in front of me because there's so much to say about 2020 in the United States. But as we looked at the presidential election coming up, I've reflected on my own experience um, working on a presidential campaign and then later in the White House um, as an assistant press secretary. As you can imagine, an American campaign is an incredible roller coaster. It's a lot of ups and downs, October surprises, the challenges of running against an incumbent president, and also where the conventional wisdom can often go quickly in the opposite direction of what you would think. In 1980, the conventional wisdom was that Reagan was too old at 69. Uh, too conservative and too much of a warmonger to be president of the United States. As for the ups and downs of the campaign, Simon mentioned Iowa. Reagan lost uh, the Iowa caucus to George H.W. Bush. Um, he didn't campaign there much because his advisors told him, it's not necessary, you're really well known there. Well, he took that lesson of that loss and campaign extremely hard in New Hampshire. And some of you might remember, it culminated in a candidate's debate, which his campaign paid for. And uh, right away, before it even started, changed the whole course of his election prospects because the moderator tried to turn off his microphone and he didn't like that. And <laughs> thus the famous line, I paid for this microphone, Mr. Breen, and I'm going to talk. Well, with those few words, he won that crucial debate. And he liked to tell the story afterwards that when they went out in the parking lot, it was littered with Bush for President stickers. <laughs> he pretty much went on pretty comfortably through the rest of the primary season. After, my, after working in the White House, I really came to appreciate the advantages of being an incumbent president uh, when you're running uh, and having that platform. Um, and of course, in 1980, that was the case for President Carter. Unfortunately for President Carter, um, he was dealing with uh, an oil crisis, he double-digit inflation, um, and plus he had 52 hostages that had been held in captivity in Iran for 444 days. He also talked about a malaise in the country. On the other hand, Reagan 
was talking about regaining that unique sense of destiny and optimism that had made America different. Um, later on in the uh, 1980 campaign, after Reagan won the Republican nomination, four more words of Reagan would have an impact, but this time on the incumbent. Uh, during one debate, the one debate with Jimmy Carter, um, who had accused Reagan of several things that Reagan thought were mistruths, untrue, uh, one of them being the warmongering label, stated that Reagan had opposed Medicare benefits for Social Security recipients. Well, Reagan's foreword response again landed as the next day's headline, there you go again, <laughs> which reminded people of all the other untruths that Carter had been talking about. At the end of the debate, Reagan asked a simple question. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? And that question can be just as relevant in this election. In this election, with the cloud of impeachment, the Senate trial, the Mueller investigation, and the other finance-related court cases against President Trump, and despite his position of incumbency, it would suggest in normal times that his re-election is doomed. But of course, we know that these aren't normal times. Trump has tested the very institutions that give America and its democracy its strength and indeed its resilience over 200 years. The three branches of government, the judicial, the executive, the legislative, the guiding foundational documents such as the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, these are all the bulwark along with a free press uh, to the American democracy. Yet we've seen a president who's challenged and devalued every one of these. A president who undermines the whole U.S. system of democratic government is unsustainable, in my opinion. The strength and resilience of these institutions is being challenged. We're watching that daily. And that's why today we're here with a president who's been impeached by the House. If lawmakers, judges, and government officials are going to abide by their own oath to the Constitution and holding a president to account, there's no choice but to push back. Pushing back against a president whose actions and comments have raised legitimate national security concerns and who's fomented public distrust in these very institutions. He's done it by criticizing judges, experts, belittling foreign policy experts and diplomats, undermining the intelligence community, and declaring the media the enemy of the people. He's also, because he believes his US foes over his own intelligence agencies, threatens national security. But we're seeing a pushback in the form of impeachment, yes. But it started with the media. You know, the media uh, reported the Trump administration's policies, its revolving door of personnel, um, the chaos within, the fact-checking and the record-keeping and the recording of 16,000-odd falsehoods. The legal community fought back with lawsuits regarding tax returns, emoluments clauses, the judiciary fought back uh, when declaring the president is not a king, 
And uh, we saw that the Supreme Court justice even had to issue a statement following a lashing by the president uh, of one of uh, uh, a high-level judge that, you know, we are um, independent. And he put out a statement supporting judges and their independence from the executive branch. The intelligence community fought back with the Mueller investigation into the uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election. Uh, and also, obviously, the whistleblower's complaint, which led to the impeachment hearings. And then we saw the Foreign Service and civil servants step up and outline the events that occurred in the Ukraine scandal, putting their own careers at risk. There's one more pushback coming, too, and that's from the American electorate. We saw that in 2018, and I saw the midterms as a bellwether to give us an indication as to which way the United States voter was going to take the country. Are we going to uh, hit the reset button? Are we going to continue with the path of disruption? Voters came out in force in usually a sleeper election year. Uh, more women, more female candidates uh, than ever ran, and they won in record numbers. And last year, we had other gubernatorial and state legislature uh, races in which Democrats won. And we saw the red state of Virginia turn blue. So laying out all that, the stage is set for an incredible and incredibly important year ahead. In my experience, running a campaign is a test of endurance. Running the White House or the US government is a test of character, judgment, and vision. The question for this election year is, can this presidency be sustained for four more years? Thanks. I'm just going to sit down. Yeah, me too. I don't want to risk tripping over both of you, so I'm going to sit down. Um, it's great. Thanks for the introduction, Simon. It's great to be here with uh, friends and colleagues from the center and to see so many people interested in American politics is tremendous and what is going to be uh, a roller coaster year of emotions, I imagine, for a lot of us in terms of hopes and aspirations. Um, as Simon said, I've put out a couple of books recently and I hope to draw upon those sort of books and the research to say a couple of things that maybe you're not reading in the New York Times or the Washington Post or hearing on the ABC. And I suppose one of them that jumps out at me thinking, listening to Kim talk and corresponding a bit today was in our book, How America Compares, we had a lot of statistics on all sorts of things, incarceration, poverty, but also on television watching. And one of the stats that jumped out at me, we had a book launch in Melbourne last night when I was rereading it, was the average American household has television on for eight and a half hours a day. The sort of soundtrack to life, really, TV in the background or on the screen. The nearest nation is Italy, I think, with about four hours, Australia about three and a half. Some people claim that Trump watches about four to eight hours television in an average day. You know, the presidency is supposed to be a fairly busy job. But I think that reminds us of the televisual nature of the modern presidency, really starting from Reagan, that Reagan recasts what a president is supposed to look like and speak like and sound like, and this lasts for a generation. And I'd argue that Trump is in some ways the dark side of that. Maybe if you're going to be a bit more ungenerous, the sort of mutant side of that, 
I, in my book on American exceptionalism and American sort of anti-Americanism, I refer to Trump at one point as the Jerry Springer presidency, that it's Jerry Springer lasted for 4,000 episodes. It's a pretty successful show, but in Jerry Springer's show, unlike Oprah that had come before it, problems were brought to the fore, dramatic problems often of sort of incest or infidelity, but they were animated for attention, not to solve those problems. And I think we have the same with Trump, that problems are brought forth, there are definitely lots of issues in America, but they're brought forth for the benefit of Trump's sort of campaign and his ego, rather than them to be addressed. So as we kind of look ahead to the campaign, I want to make a few kind of comments with Ira around the corner. I'm pretty excited about watching the Caucasus next week. Um, I'm looking forward to just what the results are because it's, it strikes me that anyone who speaks with absolute certainty about who's going to win the Democratic nomination or who, who is going to be president next year probably doesn't know what they're talking about and is probably not looking at the information, which is at this point in time pretty hard to judge. So I want to say a few things about the four main candidates running in 2020 on the Democrat side. And then I want to be a little controversial and say, well, will 2020 be the year that socialism comes to the USA? Will 2020 be the year finally where America turns a new leaf and we, uh, we end up having a 79-year-old president by then of Sanders who brings the set of ideas which has largely been at the margins of American life for a long time? If we look at the Biden campaign, I think it's fair to say he's still, in some ways, the favourite to win the presidency, but it looks shaky when he's on the debate stage. Now, debates might not matter, they didn't matter for Hillary Clinton, but Biden has, I think, a particular tendency, for those of you who've watched the debates, for, to start a sentence going in the wrong direction and then have to spend the rest of the sentence correcting what he's just said. So if he's put in more debates. There were 28 debates between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2008. If there are more debates that he's under pressure in, I don't think this is something he's done particularly well at. At the other end of the age scale is Pete Buttigieg at 38 years old. Buttigieg's name looks like a bad hand in Scrabble, doesn't it? Of, you know, where do the letters go and how are you going to make anything on the board? Uh, I mean, what's fascinating about him is that he has a tremendous amount of money. Uh, obviously, he could be running for the next 40 years as a candidate, uh, if the age guide is one to be seen. Reagan, of course, ran in 68 and then came back and won in 80. So he could, you know, this is just maybe a warm-up uh, for Buttigieg. But I think we'd see him stay in this race to sort of build his name and brand. Elizabeth Warren, some of you might have followed. Those of us who are academics find it pretty exciting that someone who's a professor could uh, imaginably be a, a president. I thought she had a lot of good ideas, but I think her campaign is in real serious trouble if you look at the numbers at the moment. Where on the other hand, the person who's really rising at the moment, maybe to the surprise of many who've followed American politics like myself for a long time, is Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders' numbers in the polls are really strong, particularly in New Hampshire and Iowa, where the first caucus will be. And the amount of money he's raised is really impressive. He's raised twice as much money as Joe Biden the favorite. And this means he's gonna stay in the campaign for a long time. And he's certainly not going to run as an 82-year-old. Um, so this is the sort of last shot for him. A couple of sort of questions or things I'd like to sort of share and put out for really to provoke the audience is to say, well, why Sanders at this moment? Why is a candidate who describes himself as a socialist, why is he a viable candidate in American politics? What, is, what has happened to American politics? And the simple answer, I think, would be to say the center hasn't delivered. In our book, How American Compares, 
you can see that life expectancy in the United States is a lot, the lowest in the OECD. A lot of the health outcomes are the worst. Universal health coverage, as we know, is not there. Poverty rates are high. There's been a long sort of period of recovery from the GFC where wealth inequality is still you know, the highest in the OECD, high poverty rates. And Sanders has come along and said, well, America maybe could learn something from other countries. America could do things differently. He's praised the Danes, he's praised the Scandinavians, he's praised the Germans on sustainability. And this isn't what we expect in American politics. Obama was an international guy, but he didn't tend to look elsewhere for solutions. Sanders has. If you look at Denmark, Denmark has about a third of the rate of poverty of the United States. The United States has six times higher rate of child poverty. About 20% of all children are in poverty in the United States compared to Denmark. So there are clearly things that could be learned from elsewhere, but this hasn't been typical of American politics. We haven't seen Americans say, look, the Australian health system's quite good, why don't we try that? Lastly, why are younger people particularly, why are Americans open to these ideas? It strikes me that there are probably a few reasons that I wrote down to sort of end up. It'd probably be best to call these ideas really social democracy or social democratic ideas and socialism, but it is interesting that Sanders wants to see himself as a democratic socialist, that's the label he uses. The reasons, I think, are the sense that growth might have returned to America, but it hasn't spread widely, that inequality is still a profoundly sort of deep thing in American society. Also, the sense of a kind of a loss of egalitarianism in America. This was supposed to be one of the great things about American society. It's what Seymour Martin Lipset called the sort of American exception, but it's not so much there. There's a plutocracy. And Sanders is really caught upon that with his idea about the 1%, having all the wealth, all the power, all the influence. Also, I don't think socialism is as scary as it once was in the Cold War. Younger people didn't grow up with that sense of the Red Scare, and I think they're more receptive and open to that. Now, we're going to see that tested. Trump would clearly run a sort of classic kind of Nixonian Cold War campaign if he runs against Saunders, but it might not be effective running against Sanders in that way. Now, we're going to see that tested in the year ahead, but at the end of the year, um, as surprised as many of us were four years ago when Trump was elected, I think many people uh, would be incredibly surprised if Bernie Sanders was the next president of the United States. But it's not inconceivable. In the same way, we should have been open a little more to the idea when Trump won the New Hampshire primary nearly four years ago that it was possible that a reality television star could be the next president of the United States. So uh, learning from the errors of the past of not writing anyone off who's got a lot of support in the polls and money, um, I've been trying to take Sanders very seriously and look at him, look at his campaign objectively, but also with a great deal of interest over the last few months. Thank you. Ash. Thanks, Simon. Um, it's quite loud. Um, so my brief tonight was to take a look at um, what's on the foreign policy and defense ticket for 2020. And of course, here the views of Democratic candidates uh, will have absolutely no effect on the way the president behaves, much like the views of the large part of the security establishment in the United States has absolutely no effect on the way the president behaves. Um, so this is not so much about the election, although there are some interesting comparisons to or, 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 uh, or, or uh, ten pegs for where public opinion sits vis-a-vis -vis the president because they're not always against him on foreign policy, um, which I'll raise as well. But I think the overall um, takeaway here is that 
2020 is the year that a couple of Trump's key gripes in foreign policy, his key bugbears are going to come home to roost in ways that really shine and show um, his, his instincts when it comes to the international sphere. And they are his obsession with the bilateral trade imbalance with China, his reflexive suspicion, if not outright hostility towards allies, in particular Japan and South Korea, and his undisciplined approach um, to defense policy, uh, particularly his inability to um, focus on his own national defense strategy and security strategies. Um, so the first of these, his, his approach to China, um, could probably be characterized as the Jerry Springer approach, probably the Jerry Seinfeld approach, uh, which is that there's much ado about nothing going on at the moment, and the show is not really about anything when you look at the phase one trade deal between the United States and China. Sure, China has agreed now, we know, in the last couple of weeks, um, to pay more, $200 billion over the next two years to the United States for merchandise, and that is going to, as Trump has already told us, ad nauseum, appeal very much to his base in the manufacturing and the agricultural uh, districts of the United States, which, newsflash, is why it's happened at the start of 2020. This doesn't stop the US-China trade war. That will continue, and there are still tariffs on the lion's share of US-China bilateral trade, approximately $360 billion of it is still tariffed. The American taxpayer will still be paying those tariffs, but Trump will have a shiny trade deal and his ability to call on that in electoral um, discussions, to use that as a little bit of a vote winner where it matters, uh, to point to in much the same way as he did with the Singapore summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Um, this is his Singapore moment when it comes to the bilateral relationship with China. Now, the foreign policy community in Washington um, is you know, divided on China still, even though there is an emerging consensus that China is the number one priority. There is no consensus on what to do about China, except fierce agreement that we need a whole of government and national approach. Um, so they've taken this trade deal with a little bit of the grain of salt. On the one hand, it does reduce a little bit of the leverage that the United States had vis-a-vis -vis China in trying to prosecute structural changes to the Chinese economy and, more importantly, trying to regulate and, in some cases, prevent China from increasing its power through advanced technologies, through cyber espionage and other ways. Um, that is something that is a double-edged sword for countries like Australia because on the one hand we have never liked Trump's trade war and there is downside risk for Australia in this deal uh, but at the same time we do not want to see US pressure on China completely evaporate which it hasn't uh, because in fact there are some important um, resets that need to take place there and we'll come to that later. Um, but on the other hand, the fact that really tariffs remain and Donald Trump is still not really running his own China strategy, in fact that's being run by the administration, they will continue along the lines that he has drawn which is broadly confrontational and allow Trump to jingle this trade win for the, for the election. Uh, that is something that I think frankly people uh, can live with and certainly um, we should expect to see happen this year. The screws will keep tightening on China, particularly around technology transfers, particularly around the prevention um, by placing Chinese firms on entity lists of transfer of technology that has a role in uh, authoritarian surveillance and detention in Xinjiang or other things. That will all continue, um, but in fact we won't see uh, the president championing confrontation, at least until he has a democratic rival to discuss it with. Uh, second, his aversion, his hostility towards Asian allies. We all know that Trump 
um, really hates Japan and South Korea. In particular, Japan, because of its um, uh, economy uh, and his memory of the 80s, where Japan was outstripping American competitiveness, but also South Korea. And in, in large part today, it's because of the large numbers of forward deployed forces in those two countries. 50,000 odd in Japan, 28,000 odd in South Korea. He's got his present this year because both of those agreements need to be renegotiated and signed off on before the election. So Trump is in a position, and it's been playing out over this summer while uh, most of us have been watching um, domestic developments uh, with a, you know, interest here in this country. It's been playing out in a pretty bloody way um, with Donald Trump asking for a five-fold increase um, in the way that Japan and South Korea both pay for the American presence in their countries, that is paying for local staff to run the bases, to service them, as well as to uphold utilities and upkeep. Um, and, and that is something which is a, a political non-starter in both Seoul and Tokyo, unless they're forced uh, to capitulate in some way. Now, the menacing tactics have escalated over the last couple of weeks. We saw two weeks ago that Secretaries Esper and Tillerson wrote an op-ed in, in, in the New York Times, essentially pressuring South Korea publicly to spending more to lift more of the burden of that alliance uh, in Northeast Asia. Now, of course, there is space for more burden sharing, but this isn't to be counted in dollars and cents. And in fact, burden sharing really should be viewed in the grander context of how much are these countries willing to do in service of shared foreign policy and defense objectives, principally in the Indo-Pacific, in Northeast Asia, and further afield. They have picked up that burden in that respect, but that's not counted in the way Trump thinks about alliances. And of course, there are legal processes in place that will help Trump in his negotiations. Just yesterday, the United States was obliged to issue to all of the South Korean staff in its bases in South Korea a notice to say that by April, they won't get paid unless there's a trade agreement sealed. And that's 9,000 jobs that South Korea now has to worry about at a time when the Trump um, moon, the President Moon in South Korea, personal relationship is really not going that well. Uh, so where are we left here for Australia? Uh, Australia is deeply worried about a fallout between any of Trump's, any of America's rather, key alliances in Asia and the implications that, that will have not just for the proximate security issues at stake, in this case North Korea and China, but also for the knock-on effect it will have, clearly and already is, uh, on confidence vis-a-vis -vis American staying power in the Indo-Pacific more broadly. If Trump runs his alliances um, as we've always thought he would, um, essentially as a protection racket, then countries in the region are going to continue to need to find alternate workarounds to clump together and deal with their security um, concerns themselves. Look, just finally, I'll point to um, a broader issue um, in the way that Trump is approaching his defense policy but not actually following the rules that he himself has signed off on but not written. Um, the national defense strategy of two years ago, we've just passed the anniversary, um, prioritized for the first time strategic competition with China in the defense realm and, um, and a focus on retooling the United States for winning this great power competition after two decades of essentially um, uh, unsuccessful and deeply draining forever wars in the Middle East. Um, that is something that many in the Asia policy community have deeply applauded and certainly folks here in Australia have. 
but since then he spent uh, the best part of the last 18 months trying to pick a fight with Iran and that sum total of all of the uh, deployment here, a deployment there after the um, drone incident uh, in, Sa in Saudi Arabia, after the assassination of um, General Suleiman in Iran, the sum total of all of the incremental increases in American forces in the Gulf after we're supposed to be deprioritizing this region, has reached almost 20,000 new soldiers deployed there. The United States defense budget is not going to grow probably in the next five years. We are already seeing a cap in the twilight of this administration in terms of no new lift in this year's budget because it's already been signed off. And all of the Democratic hopefuls are going to be focused primarily on diplomacy rather than defense, certainly in their first term, and are not going to be looking for the sorts of fights they'll get on the Hill with their own base if they try and lift defense spending. So we have here a president that although he's now asking his Secretary of Defense to embark on a global posture of view that will formally in, and in a, in a careful way reduce American forward deployments in parts of the world that don't matter as much anymore and increase them and better retool them in others, that is a process that he himself isn't following that now can't be completed before the election and that will be left to one of the candidates Brennan was just talking about to really steward through over the next four years from the end of this one. Thanks, Ash. Um, great three opening perspectives. Um, plenty for me to work with there, at least. Um, start, Kim, um, I'm so pleased that you put on the table the Reagan question. Um, mm -hmm. And that is the question, as Kim said, you know, that Ronald Reagan uh, was able to put to the American people when he was seeking re-election, he said, ask yourself a similar question, are you better off than you were four years ago? Um, how do you think most Americans are going to answer that question if, if, if and when Trump gets around to putting it to them? Well, obviously, first of all, it depends on who you ask. Um, the economy is going well, apparently. You know, we have low inflation, low unemployment, Wall Street's going off. That, well up and down, but primarily, you know, his economy's looking good. Yeah. And to borrow a phrase from a, another campaign, it's the economy stupid, <laughs> which was the Clinton campaign that beat George H.W. Bush. It, it still is the relevant factor. I mean, there's so many other factors going on in America now than in 1980. But nevertheless, there was still an oil crisis. There, there was a, you know, high inflation and low wages and a lot of economic strife and a general feeling of, of negativity. What strikes me about America always has been its optimism. And I've always felt that Trump doesn't work for America because he's so negative. And he doesn't make Americans feel good about their country. He's feeding a divide that's, that's been building in the country for 30 years. I've often said to friends and family, I feel like I'm watching Rome burn over these last few decades because it's, it's, it's just degenerated uh, into partisan division in which politics isn't functioning. Well, we have to remember why Trump was elected. He was elected because Americans were sick of Washington and they were sick of politicians in Congress that weren't, to their mind, functioning in their best interest. Um, definitely we can ask the question today, 
are you better off? I, I don't know what the majority of the electorate's going to say in November because it's so unpredictable. And there's so much time between now and November. So much can happen, so much can change. In my examples, Justin, with President Reagan, with a few words, how things could change for him. With this president, it's not just a, you know the Twitter words. It's every day we're, we're hearing some sort of outrage or we're hearing uh, something that's breaking the traditional norms. Now, there, there are certain people that like that. In, in uh, Brendan's remarks about Bernie Sanders, this is, he's the other outlier in all of this. I mean, he's the opposite of Trump. But there are a lot of people in America who, again, want Sanders because he is the outlier, but he's, you know, he, he addresses the issues they want addressed. Um, I, I fully agree with Brendan that he's someone to, to look, uh, look out for. Um, Bloomberg will be another interesting yeah, wonder, uh, injection, wonder, but I'll yeah, stop there. I wonder, ask yeah. Brendan yeah. Bloomberg, but before I get to that, mm -hmm. um, um, do you think, I mean, anyone can jump in on this. Um, has Trump got the discipline to run a back to basics campaign? Most presidents seeking re-election get re-elected. Mm. Most of them do so when the economy is in reasonable shape, mm. to good shape. Check that box as well. Mm. Um, but can Trump help himself mm. and stay focused on a very simple message through particularly the American summer? Mm. And you know, and keep it really focused on it's the economy stupid yeah. and not get distracted by this other stuff. Because, you know, one thing I come back to, if we were any other president, given these macroeconomic numbers, Trump's approval rating ought to start with a high five or even a low six. Mm. Instead, it's 42, 43 on a good day. Mm. I'm just wondering, you know, that's one of the puzzling things for me thinking about the campaign we're about to see in the general election, you know, He's got a great set of cards to play on the one hand with the economy, but for the love of, <laughs> can he, is he the guy that can actually play them? Yeah, in 2018, the Republicans, I think, went to Trump and said, look, talk about the economy and maybe give the wall and the rest of it and the immigration sort of scaremongering, give that a break for a little bit. And he couldn't do that. He couldn't discipline himself to help his own party. Now, what? You know, it's not a perfect marriage between him and his own party, so that there wasn't always, uh, wasn't always as much sort of loyalty as he, the people who are up for re-election would have hoped. And I think you're right, Simon, that he can easily get drawn in to whoever is his chief sort of campaign advisor. Clearly, Bannon was very influential on him last time. Drawn into a particular argument that he thinks fires up that base. He obviously gets his energy from those campaign rallies that we've seen him almost in a permanent rally sort of sense mm. and governing in a permanent crisis sense. Mm. So it's hard to switch from this kind of continuous crisis to say, okay, America is now great. Um, you know, you've had this sort of morning in America mm -hmm. story. He doesn't have the personality for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this isn't his instincts. He's, he's one out of fear rather than optimism. Mm. And this is an unusual story for American politics. I mean, we think of Barack Obama in some ways Obama comes out of central casting. America is at a difficult point in Iraq. There's a global financial crisis which America has been at the centre of, and you get someone to come out and say, no, America still can be great. They can elect an African-American for the first time. They can elect someone who, you know, had, a, had an upbringing that was very unlikely to bring them to the presidency. All faith can be restored. You can love your country again. 
you certainly haven't had that with Trump, the mm. sense of how he can move to that. And the other thing about Trump, I think it's very different to Reagan in, say, 84. There's not probably too many Americans or people on the planet who think, I'm not sure about Donald Trump. You know, I just haven't made up my mind. Um, you know, I'm open to, uh, you know, persuasion Pleasure. that he's got a few good ideas up his sleeve. Where I think there were people who came out, clearly Democrats in 84, for Reagan who hadn't been maybe engaged. And where I think there's just such a polarized electorate to see much movement is going to be difficult. And therefore, is this question of turnout. Are the people that turned out for Trump last time who don't always vote, are they going to come out in the Midwest? Or is Sanders right? Are there a group of younger people and maybe some poorer Americans who don't typically vote who might vote this time? And so we're, I think for people who follow polls, and Simon probably more than all of us, it makes it very hard to say, well, who will be the electorate in November? You know, who, who actually are the people who are going to decide this race? I would say, though, I just add to that, his base is not growing. His base has been stable, but it's not like he's attaining a whole lot of new adherence. So I think as the election goes on, and I always, I've always up to this point had faith in the American people. It's like with the impeachment hearings. I feel like the more they're, even though they're not being watched like the Nixon impeachment or even say the Clinton impeachment, um, the, the numbers aren't there because uh, Trump's favorite network is not even bothering to air them. But I think that the, the people that are watching it, they're getting educated about how dangerous his performance, his unpredictability, and his destabilizing and, un and no, he can't be controlled to really answer your question. It's not always good to control a president. Often Ronald Reagan used to push back on people who tried to make him a walking encyclopedia, which he wasn't. And, and uh, when he was allowed to just be himself, he was much more effective communicator. I understand letting Trump be Trump some of the time, but he's not able to um, accept his own government expertise uh, and advice, of which there's a wealth of intelligence within the American U.S. government. Um, let me, before we open it up to questions from the audience, I want to make sure um, we mentioned Bloomberg and the four you chose to dwell on, Brendan, in your um, analysis of the democratic field, you know, the four sort of front runners from a polling perspective, Biden, Buttigieg, Sanders, Warren. Um, as I was taking notes and I'm, you know, I'm wondering, is Brendan also going to talk about Bloomberg? Um, um, polling right now nationally has broken double digits. Um, I was in California um, uh, over New Year's you can't miss him on the TV. Mm. He is spending just a truckload of money mm. um, buying presents and has essentially bought that 12% that he's got in the polls right now. Is mm. not campaigning in Iowa, is running dead mm. in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, no. um, Nevada, the first four, and is hoping to just sweep, you know, mm. do come in, riding in mm. on. Now, how do you think a general election contest between one New York billionaire and another <laughs> New York... But more realistically, how would you situate the Bloomberg candidacy? What's the path of the nomination for him and, and any thinking about, you know, sort of putting... Just that story you told us about where the Democratic base is mm. and some enthusiasm and a big chunk of it yeah. for a Sanders program. That ain't the Bloomberg program. No. Yeah, I mean, Bloomberg has got the 2008 Rudy Giuliani strategy. Giuliani was ahead in the polls for most of 2007. 
some of us remember Giuliani as a mayor and some of a running candidate and some of us the kind of scoundrel that he's become recently on this Ukrainian stuff. But he was ahead in the polls. It was going to be a Hillary Clinton Bloomberg race in 2008. But he wasn't popular in Iowa where there's a very strong religious conservative base. Ted Cruz won there last time. And so he put all of his sort of strategy into the Super Tuesday. Missed the four, first four or so put it into Florida and a few other races. And it was a total failure because the momentum that those early states give, the amount of publicity, the free advertising really, that a Sanders or a Biden will get um, from Iowa and the New Hampshire, it makes it so hard to come back. And so I think we've well, got to ask yourself, Bloomberg's in stupid, he probably knows that, but he's got a billion dollars that he maybe doesn't need to use. And what is he doing with that billion dollars? He's going to use it to run down Trump. So I think part of the strategy for Bloomberg is, do I care if I win, if I knock this other guy off? And so the money is being poured out into the states, probably not the swing states. So that's a questionable strategy. Money's going into Alabama and other places. Democrats probably aren't going to win. But I think part of his strategy is really just to run down Trump as much as possible. And there's no electoral rules about spending your own money. So you can spend a billion dollars and, um, you know, if you're Mike Bloomberg, that's loose change. Uh, and so it's a very unusual kind of campaign. Now, I might be wrong. There might be a sense of disillusionment with all candidates at some point. He might come back, but I don't see it historically, at least, yeah. as any precedent for someone saying, look, I can't win in the first four states. I got in too late, but I'm going to come back with this kind of swing. I think at some point people were saying, well, Michael who? because the publicity factor yeah. is so big early on. Yeah. I think he's been well suited uh, in his more backstage role, putting his money into races. He's, he's, he's invested a lot of money in democratic races and in issues around gerrymandering and, and uh, funding court cases uh, that have allowed places like North Carolina to be challenged on how they've redistricted places that favor Republicans. So he's been very effective behind the scenes with his money, and I think he should stay in that lane myself. Okay. Mm. Um, billionaires should be <laughs> neither seen nor well, just, just writing checks. Um, um, Ash, um, does, Trump, does Trump's record in total on foreign policy is that a net electoral positive for him or a net electoral negative? I know the foreign policy establishment has one view uh, and, and we can rattle off disappointments, but how, how do you think it's playing out there? I mean, I think the first point there is whether or not foreign policy has any bearing on the election at all. And you know, historically, it doesn't. Uh, whether Americans amongst the smorgasbord of other issues that they worry about personally a lot more uh, are going to care enough about um, the state of alliances and the liberal international order to want Trump out of office, um, I think is a pretty hard sell. Um, that said, um, what are their other options? Um, when you look at the candidates on the Democratic side and you compare what they're offering, what Trump's offering, and what polling suggests Americans care about when it comes to some of these issues like alliances, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, Biden will give you, as some say, everything that uh, Obama had uh, that you liked and less of what you didn't. Um, that might be true, but it seems clear to me that he is the establishment candidate and his biggest problem will be 
um, in fixing the global order, um, how can he do that while also making really hard choices and priorities with regards to which parts of the world matter most, resourcing the kind of foreign policy agenda that he has outlined is almost, uh, is almost certain to be unattainable in the short term. Um, Americans, 75% of them say that they care a lot about their alliances, so they may like that about Biden, but at the same time, if you look at polling uh, from late last year on uh, Japan and South Korea and what um, Americans think about forward deployed forces in Asia or forward deployed forces in general, uh, only about 50% of Americans think that that's a net positive and that is reciprocally advantageous to the United States achieving its global interests. So if only half of the electorate, therefore, um, thinks that forward deployed troops matter, it may not be the case um, that it's a, it's, a, it's a clear advantage for a Biden if he's the most likely candidate versus a Trump. And then when you come to Warren and, and, and Sanders, yeah. um, they have made very clear uh, their utter dissatisfaction with wars in the Middle East and their urgent imperative to end them, as well as their urgent imperative to slash military spending and their urgent imperative to rebuild diplomacy and perhaps learn from others. Um, uh, one, on, one read of that is that that might um, allow priorities to be made. And of course, we know Americans are sick of wars in the Middle East, um, wars that Trump is starting again in the Middle East. Um, but at the same time, they've also been very strong on the um, anti-authoritarianism line and the importance of restoring American values, as has Biden. How much do Americans care about that when they're voting? We know that Americans care about values globally, and majorities say that. Um, but at the same time, less than a third of Americans wants to actually reduce the power that China has in the world. And in fact, where we're heading in strategic competition of both sides of politics is inevitably going to be requiring uh, some form of constraint on China's rising power, legislatively, through Congress, through defense, through a major shakeup of the fundamentals of American capitalism. And that's something I think the business community is worried about with all who come in. So, you know, you put all those things into the mix and it seems to me the only thing that we can be sure of is that Trump's base will be told very loudly that they got what they signed up for in foreign policy. That is um, a deal with China, even if it's not a real deal, a deal with North Korea, even if it's not a real deal, the assassination of a really bad guy, and everyone can agree on that, even if it was not sensible, um, and beyond that, I'm not sure they care that much about allies in Asia um, getting shortchanged at this point in time. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, why don't we open it up to the floor at this point, and hands are going up already. Mara, first cab off the rank right here. And questions, not speeches, thank you. Thank you, Simon. Uh, one question, a lot of analysis shows that the longest lasting impact of Trump who shall survive years, if not decades, after he's gone as president, is the judiciary. A number of conservative judges appointed up and down the hierarchy, including the Supreme Court and across every jurisdiction. How big an issue do you see that being for his successor or successors? Will it act as a constraint on a progressive president, or will it act as an enabler for a more, heaven help us, a more conservative and populist successor? How big a deal is that? Yes. <laughs> what do you want me to start? I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right to identify that, number one, as, as the, the, one of the lasting legacies. Trump came to power with fully one-sixth of the judiciary, the federal bench, vacant and has gone at, at a, quite the clip filling those um, appointments with um, young people, 
um, and, um, and, and, um, and I will go to my grave uh, with Trump appointees on the federal bench. Absolutely, um, um, that'll be the case. Um, I think the really interesting thing for a successor, if you're looking to balance that, is, is actually, I think, perhaps legislation that um, attempts to pull less things out of the realm of the courts, take discretion away from the bench uh, that Trump has helped build, uh, and that's, that's hard. Um, and for that reason, I, I just come back and agree with your, your observation. Uh, I think it's once you've done that and you've put in place that generation of, of fiercely conservative jurists um, and, the, and the sorts of matters that they hear, labor, environment in particular, key among them, um, um, that's what legacy looks like. I, I don't think court stacking uh, as a, as, is, a, is a reasonable, um, is, is likely, but I do think attempts to um, do end runs through legislation both federally but also at the state level, and that's been an interesting thing we've seen in the age of Trump, that if you can't get your want from DC for whatever reason with, um, with, with Trump or the courts or whatever it might be, and the, you mentioned gerrymandering, Pennsylvania was an interesting case there where it turned out Pennsylvania State Court uh, was a place you could go and sue against a pro-Republican gerrymander. And I think that's just a t an example. But the thing about the American system is that if you can't get what you want out of the federal courts, maybe, and not all the time, but maybe there are other, other avenues to go uh, pu push the matter. A few thoughts on that from me. Do you guys any I, I would only on just add, uh, agree, I definitely agree with the questioner. That's a real issue in America, uh, particularly as Congress is becoming less effective legislatively. So a lot of things are being battled out in the courts that maybe shouldn't have had to go to courts in the first place. So a lot of the politics in America are ending up in the judiciary and that's a very dangerous thing. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing I'd add is I agree totally. And I mean, the other issue that is gonna have an enormous legacy is Trump's sort of climate denialism. You know, that, that is gonna be something we haven't talked about yeah, tonight, but it's gonna have incredibly sort of long-term impacts and eight years is probably too much for all of us and <laughs> planet to bear to think about in some regards in regard to the climate. But the really interesting thing that's sort of been reported in the last few days about sort of the judicial actions is these are very closely watched by conservative Christians in America and all their organizations mm. and the get out to vote efforts of those groups have been significant in the past. George W. Bush was helped to get reelected on the basis of that in Ohio and elsewhere. And there's been a big push in Wisconsin I've seen in the last few days to try to sign up conservative Catholics through pretty high tech sort of means to get them out to vote and that judicial record will be the thing that will be hammered, that this is where changes will be up to be made on Roe v. Wade, on abortion rights, uh, access for very conservative Christian, conservative newspapers and uh, media outlets has been excellent in the Trump White House. Trump himself might not be one of the most outstanding Christians of all time, but he's certainly given you know, enormous access that we haven't probably always seen reported to uh, evangelical organizations and their media outlets and they've got the air of the president because Trump, if nothing else, realizes that those people helped get him elected and that means a lot to him. So or got him elected and may get him re-elected. We've got a hand up here. Thank you. Hi, um, I'd like to invite you to consider what the implications of a Sanders presidency would be for Australia. 
Yeah, I, I suppose I put the idea out there. So I mean, I imagine <laughs> that um, imagine that it would be uncomfortable for our our current government. That it would be a sense of a pivot from Trump to Sanders isn't one you could make easily to say, look, you know, we're uh, we're friends of every American president. We uh, we can uh, we can sort of uh, you know walk either side of the political divide. Um, you know, you, you, that is a pretty dramatic change, and particularly. If you've followed Sanders on foreign policy, it is going to be one clearly where the environment is a very pro top priority uh, if he was to get elected. Also, you know, cutting defence spending, uh, not focusing on maybe some of the issues that we've sort of typically seen as a kind of, you know, interoperability issues in Australia, military issues. The militarisation of American foreign policy would be something Sanders, of course, would have sort of, you know, sort of hit first on attack. Also, Sanders on trade with China would be, I think, in some ways challenging. I mean, we see some of his criticism of all sorts of trade deals, including the recent uh, North American sort of free trade agreement that replaced NAFTA. So that would be a tricky space for Australia as well to get involved in, because for a Sanders administration, you could imagine environmental regulations, labour rights, wouldn't just matter in America, they'd be mattering with America's trading partners as well. So. It would be, uh, you know, it would make the minds of Canberra analysts and DFAT, I think, do a lot of work because uh, you'd be thinking in a new direction, wouldn't you? And uh, so it would be challenging for all of us to teach it, to uh, to advise. Um, can I, can I, yeah. Ashley? Do you have a view on how a uh, a uh, socialist uh, senator from Vermont thinks about Indo-Pacific yeah. strategy and uh, <laughs> a return to great power competition, as articulated in? The NDS and the NSS. Yeah, no, I, I mean a couple of points. I mean, firstly, um, you know, and, and to uh, to paraphrase a, a senior Japanese diplomat that I was speaking to last week, the the response um, would be from the Australian government, um, much like Christmas, which is to say that you'll unwrap your present on election day and you'll say, "This is exactly what I wanted. Uh, <laughs> this presidency is exactly what I wanted." And of course, from a from a diplomatic point of view, that will be the official line from all of the countries in the Indo-Pacific, because at the end of the day, we, we will work with the United States. The fundamentals of the alliance are governed by Congress. The fundamentals of the defense budget are governed by Congress. Um, much as there was a lot of terror about what a Trump administration, or Trump presidency rather, would mean for these things, there will be that with a Sanders presidency. And in fact, we will see that Congress will stand up and it will continue to essentially keep things on track because you can't unscramble the egg. That's the first point. The second point is, I think, on, on one hand, um, Sanders might uh, have the right combination of instincts, even if they're not presented in the right way, uh, that, are, that, that is what you need for a sensible whole of government strategic competition with a country like China that is using all elements at its disposal to interfere with elections, to disrupt supply chains, to use leverage and coercion and all these sorts of things in an undeclared grey zone way. Why is that? Trump is sceptical about the nature of modern capitalism and supply chains, he's sceptical about trade agreements and he's also now deeply um, uh, um, supportive of standing up for democracies around the world. China is not a democracy. China is using and abusing the nature of unfettered and under-regulated American capitalism in the United States, 
in ways that even the right of American politics are recognising are loopholes in the system and need to be closed. It's not to say that the fundamental ideologies are wrong, but it is to say that the system needs changing and Sanders wants to change it. So with that, you may well see uh, a president who is willing to pay some attention to that sort of detail. Uh, and, and use his instincts and have them shaped by the national security community to be uh, positive in that regard. And finally, he's shown um, that he will learn and listen to his national security community. Sanders hasn't always been as positive about NATO as he is now. And leading up to this sort of election, he is rolling out that more move to the right on something, move to the center rather, move to the right for him on certain issues like America's global alliances in ways that he knows will be appealing to um, the populace at large. There are a few quirks in the Sanders foreign policy agenda that will be deeply complicating for countries around the world, including Australia. But there are things that we will certainly be able to work with. Keep the questions coming. How about this side of the room and, and that woman over there? Thank you. Social media has played a huge part in past um, elections. Um, what do you, part do you think social media will play in this election, especially a lot of people think that Trump has an edge in that sort of arena? Well, the Obama administration was the, uh, the, 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 the start of really effective grassroots uh, uh, campaigning using social media. I mean, obviously, this president is well-versed in one form of social media, overversed probably. But uh, it, it's everything in a campaign. And we talk about Bernie Sanders, maybe this sort of, Brendan mentioned about the old-fashioned style of campaigning and organizing. But there's really nothing old-fashioned about it anymore. Um, it is, if anybody's going to succeed, you've got to be on these platforms and, and using them effectively. How the White House uses them is another thing altogether. As a, as a campaign, it's very effective at keeping your $5 donors uh, coming back again and again and again. And that happened successfully in the uh, Obama campaign. And, Everyone is uh, on, in the current election campaign cycle totally uh, engaged. And yes, I, I, how else can we say it? But it is the way of the future, and it is the future. I mean, Thomas Edsel had a brilliant article a couple of weeks, about a week ago in the New York Times. The journalist, I think, encourage you to follow. And he was saying Trump spent about four or five times more of his money than Hillary Clinton on digital media, on online media in the last campaign. And it went under the radar. There's a brilliant book that came out last year called Anti-Social, which sort of tracked these networks of pretty much just sort of self kind of motivated Trump supporters who had these enormous networks of Twitter followers and email followers that were sending out stories about Hillary Clinton having various strokes and you know, pedophilia rings in Washington, D.C. And these people, the amount of influence these people had, I think is easily underrated. I mean, the amount of uh, followers that got out to vote and got people excited about Trump, yeah, gave money, volunteered their time, um, went under the radar in the sort of election coverage quite often. And only three years or so later, we're getting good journalism on it saying, look, oh, all of this stuff mattered. These weren't just, you know, sort of angry white men in their bedrooms kind of complaining to each other, this was actually 
hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. And like the, the unlikelihood of sort of WhatsApp being the media tool that gets a Brazilian president elected, you know, Twitter and some of these other forms of media, I think, have far more influence than we kind of realized at the time. So I think you're dead right. It's something to follow. And I, something that Edsel was claiming, Trump has a big advantage in, because that's where his focus and of his money has been. And we don't know yet about election interference. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, we do know about it, but we don't know exactly how much effect it's going to I'm, have. I'm very year. curious this cycle to see um, what form the Facebook truth squatting initiative, you know, how that actually cashes out on the ground. Um, yeah. Facebook people that, are, you know, I, I, I lived and worked just across the road from Facebook for a long time and a lot of my former students um, work there, apoplectic uh, that, they, that the platform, the technology that was to make us all closer and they're, you know, one big happy world, you know, the weaponization of the internet and with Facebook as perhaps one of the primary vectors, just devastated, I think, you know, to the extent there's any idealism left at Facebook, <laughs> certainly <laughs> devastated uh, people of that mindset. And, and the company is, I'm just extremely curious, they're running an experiment as well as to how to defend against it but it butts up against America's commitment to a First Amendment and freedom of speech. And it's, it's a clash of that older historical cultural tradition in the United States enshrined in the First Amendment to the Constitution with technology that is not just a vector for, for malign domestic actors, but malign foreign actors as well. And the extent to which the industry can clean its own act up on that, so to speak, and regulate some of that, I think is one of the great, I'm so glad you asked the question, it's going to be sort of one of the other stories of this election campaign um, um, that, that we ought to be tracking and keeping an eye on. It's hard to do it in real time because the only people seeing it in real time are, are, are you, typically are, are, are the companies uh, themselves. Great question, thank you. Um, why don't we stick with this side of the room real quickly? Um, can we, yeah, the gentleman in front with his, with his hand up, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, we're getting on to uh, foreign intervention, and that seems a factor which is going to be really difficult to assess. We've seen the successful Russian intervention, and there's no reason to believe that it won't continue or change course to be equally successful. We haven't really seen much Chinese intervention, and that seems to me a probability. But equally, not necessarily in the cyber field, but Iranian intervention to get back and to have the ultimate revenge on Trump by working his defeat and bringing about either by Iran itself or its proxies foreign policies, catastrophes, which wouldn't be on the level of 9-11 so as to encourage patriotism, but sufficient to show that Trump is impotent at least in that area. Ash, this is in your ballpark, mate. Yeah, look, I think um, you know, election interference could be prosecuted by any one of a number of actors, and they're not all states in many cases. The chance of a, of a, of a terrorist organisation or even the chance of a malign disruptor group uh, interfering in the election for um, the 
their own motivations, which we will probably never know, is another possibility. Now, all of these are being looked at by the national security community in the United States, and there are obviously preparations underway. However, I think one of the key things that many want to see that hasn't happened yet is for there to be a clear statement by the president to say that interference by foreign actors or any form of interference in the election will not be tolerated. There will be federal resources made available to prevent that from happening, and an outcome that is shaped where, where it can be proven by interference that can be pointed to after the fact is something that will be looked at and investigated, not used as part of a re-election campaign. So that statement from the president is important and hasn't happened uh, as yet. Um, having said that, you know, you asked about Chinese and, and, and Russian um, intervention, interference rather in the election. I'm not sure if China wants another term of Trump or not. Um, likewise with Russia. So really what we're talking about here is not so much them tilting um, the, their, their hand on the tiller, so to speak, but rather casting doubt over the outcome of the election so as to cause confusion and chaos and then let political actors in the United States themselves dig that hole deeper to create um, uh, congestion and to prevent essentially us moving on from the election to whoever is the next candidate. Let's come to the middle of the room. Our first question from here. And uh, this gentleman with his hand up, thank you. And, and some more women with their hand up would be, would be great too, please. <laughs> Can a Democratic nominee uh, going to the general election with a policy of Medicare for all, as, and I suppose that means as both uh, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren talk about it, can they win the election with that policy or is that going to be the lead in the Democratic nominee's saddlebags that'll see President Trump sail to re-election? Well, that's a good question. I, my opinion is Elizabeth Warren should not have painted herself into a corner on that issue. There are a lot of people in America who are worried about healthcare and the costs of healthcare, absolutely. But there are people that have their health policies that they're happy with. There are unions that have fought hard for really good policies for working Americans. They don't want to give it up. And I, I think she has made a, a, a grave mistake because I think a lot of people want to vote for a woman this year. She's a good candidate. But that is a really serious issue. And along with the immigration issue, health care, and the economy, they are the hip pocket issues for America. We are so fortunate in this country, even though our health care costs are going up, they're nothing, nothing like what's going on in America. You don't want to be sick in America unless you have a really good private health care policy. So I, I do think it will be difficult for her uh, to get to get them over, and that's what the Democrats are worried about. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank you for your talks. Kim, I was interested in your comments about how various uh, institutions in America have been standing up to try to support um, the values of American democracy. Yeah. And so I'm wondering how confident you feel about the senators being able to stand up and do their role impartially in the Senate in the impeachment trial rather than just vote on party lines? Oh, I'm not confident at all, unfortunately. Um, the numbers, they, 
you know, this, this is a, another conversation, I think, but the Republican Party is not the Republican Party of decades ago. It's a factionalized uh, group of people um, that are never really going to come together. They've come together under Trump, obviously, because it's the only way they could get elected. I mean, look, in, in, in 2016, they had 17 <laughs> candidates, and not one of them could get the, electric, the electorate energized. It was Trump. I mean, that tells you how desperate that party is and how torn apart that party is. Um, so I think they've already, they've already sold their soul. There's, there's no going back for a lot. There, there may be three or four, Mitt Romney, you know, Murkowski, Collins, they might demand witnesses. It doesn't mean they're going to, to vote to remove the president. Um, no, I, I, don't see that, I don't see that changing because the political divide is, is a lasting thing in America for a long time to come, in my opinion. And uh, Robert, and and then we'll do, um, and we'll bundle Tony as well, and, and that'll be our last two questions before we have some refreshments. Thanks. Thank, thanks, Simon. Just to follow up uh, to that last question, what impact do you, any of you see the impeachment and Senate trial process having on the campaign and on Trump's fortunes in particular? Um, could it be a positive or a negative for him? Mm. Okay, and, and Tony? Sorry? No. Yeah. We'll, we'll take yep, yep, yep. Yep. and then we'll do Tony do as well. Do you want to take the question first or? No, you, you ask yours as well and then we'll just, we'll deal with both. Thanks. Okay. Yep. Uh, I was going to do a one on impeachment, but we'll swap to VP sweepstakes 2020. Um, famously in 1960, LBJ paired with, Joe, with uh, JFK and his old man thought it was uh, one of the smartest moves he had made. Now, in 2020, we have people like Kamala Harris and other people standing on the sidelines, and even we have footage of Klobuchar talking to Biden and other people. What likely pairings would you be looking for in the next two, three months as the, the primaries swing into action? You're, you're, okay, so two questions. Um, effect of impeachment on the, on the campaign and likely VEAT pairings that picking up some of the people that have dropped out, perhaps, yeah. Well, I suppose we all say something, but I think uh, one of the things is sort of theme about, you know, it's remarkable that we've had a gathering like this in the middle of an impeachment trial in the Senate, and that hasn't dominated our conversation, that we haven't all been glued to the prospect of a president falling over and, uh, you know, being dismissed from office because the evidence is there. Um, but it's demoralising watching it, I felt, today, because you have a sense of the inevitable that it doesn't matter what the facts are, there'll be a partisan vote, there's 67 votes needed to dismiss, that's not gonna happen, incredibly unlikely anyway. And so there is a sense of, well, you know, what is politics about? What is politics for in this regard? Now, how does that affect the campaign? Surely if you're a younger American, this isn't, you know, greatly inviting to think my first vote is gonna be for this guy who slipped the sort of noose in this regard. Um, that I think there will be some demoralising impact on the Trump campaign. Now, Trump will declare victory in the classic sort of Roy Cohen style. No matter what happens, he'll say he was exonerated, that it was a witch trial, witch hunt, that uh, there was nothing to be, you know, seen in the, in the case. So he will sell it as a victory. But I think there will 
hopefully Kim is right, there will be people who have watched this or at least followed some of the evidence to say, hang on a minute, you know, this sounded a bit like bribery. Um, and so hopefully that is demoralizing. Now for pairings, uh, some of us might have got excited about a Warren Sanders ticket. Uh, a couple of weeks ago there was a debate where there was no handshake uh, and that may, you know, made that a bit more frosty, that prospect, but Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama worked together after trading some pretty choice words with each other in the 2008 campaign. Um, you know, you could imagine, you know, a Klobuchar Biden ticket definitely uh, uh, being quite likely. Uh, it would be great, uh, as Kim was saying, to have a woman running successfully against Trump and beating him. That would fill me with a lot of joy. I think a lot of us here as well. But it doesn't look very likely at the moment. So hopefully there is a vice president for the, you know, running with, uh, with whoever wants the Democratic nominee who's a woman. Kim. I would say on the, camp, on the impeachment issue, it is definitely a stain on the presidency. There's no doubt about that. But the question to me isn't how is it going to affect the campaign. It's how does it affect the president governing in this last year or the next four, mm -hmm. four years. Have, having worked at the White House um, and worked in the Bush administration, I am, I am sensitively aware of how uh, disruptive and how um, it takes your eye off the ball, th these kinds of scandals. The fact that Brendan mentioned that this president watches four or five hours of television a day, it's unfathomable to me. And it's why I worry, it's, it's he's not, there's, there's no one really governing properly. Um, the effect of impeachment and the trial, and who knows what other scandals will come along during this year, but on his record, probably something. Um, it's distracting. It's completely taking his eye off the ball. He doesn't have a government that's completely filled out. He doesn't, he's got a personnel office that he wanted to get rid of. He tries people out on Fox News and then they get a job like John Bolton did, who I worked with at the State Department. Um, you know, th there are so many gaps in the US government, let alone a president who is distracted and not leading properly. So yes, the impeachment will have a huge effect on that because he's going to be carrying a chip on his shoulder for the rest of the year and we're going to be hearing about this hoax for the so-called hoax for the rest of the year. That's going to be a total distraction for him. Um, on the pairings, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, I, I, I tend to think at this point in time that a Biden-Klobuchar uh, combination could be the moderate central uh, ticket that could could uh, get him over the line. I tend to think that even though a lot of people feel there's a lot of damage being done to Biden during these impeachment hearings with Burisma and the Ukraine issue, I also tend to think that his name out there is just giving him name, free name recognition all the time and, and uh, keeping him up there as the number one candidate. Uh, I'll stop now because who knows, between now and November, so much can change. Uh, Biden himself was asked the other day um, a question and somehow uh, said, uh, how do you, uh, uh, what role do you think um, Obama will play in your campaign? He went, well, I'd really love Michelle to be the Veep. Um, <laughs> and yeah, how about that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Or the president. <laughs> um, don't think Biden's got that in mind. <laughs> okay, that'll have to do everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks to the panel.